This morning, uh, as, we, uh, as we come around God's word, I'd like us to go to uh, Exodus chapter four. Exodus chapter four. And uh, we're going to read the, the whole chapter. And this is the, the encounter that um, Moses is having uh, with the Lord at the burning bush. It's kind of in the middle of the account of the burning bush, so we can't read the entire account of the burning bush. We're going to pick it up in chapter 4, and uh, we'll read the, the whole chapter beginning at verse 1. Then Moses answered, What if they won't believe me and will not obey me, but say, The Lord did not appear to you? The Lord asked him, What is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. Then he said, throw it on the ground. He threw it on the ground, and it became a snake. Moses ran from it, but the Lord told him, stretch out your hand and grab it by the tail. So he stretched out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. This will take place, he continued, so they will believe that Yahweh, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. In addition, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. So he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, his hand was diseased, white as snow. Then he said, put your hand back inside your cloak. And when he took it out, it had again become like the rest of his skin. If they will not believe you and will not respond to the evidence of the first sign, they may believe the evidence of the second sign. And if they don't believe even these two signs or listen to what you say, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the Nile will become blood on the ground. But Moses replied to the Lord, please, Lord, I have never been eloquent either in the past or recently or since you have been speaking to your servant because I am slow and hesitant in speech. Yahweh said to him, who made the human mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf, seeing or blind? Is it not I, Yahweh? Now go, I will help you speak and I will teach you what to say. Moses said, please, Lord, Send someone else. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses, and he said, Isn't Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well, and also he is on his way now to meet you. He will rejoice when he sees you. You will speak with him and tell him what to say. I will help both you and him to speak and will teach you both what to do. He will speak to the people for you. He will be your spokesman, and you will serve as God to him. And take this staff in your hand that you will perform the signs with. Then Moses went back to his father-in-law Jethro and said to him, Please let me return to my relatives in Egypt and see if they are still living. Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. Now in Midian the Lord told Moses, Return to Egypt for all the men who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey, and returned to the land of Egypt. And Moses took God's staff 
in his hand. The Lord instructed Moses, when you go back to Egypt, make sure you do all the wonders before Pharaoh that I have put within your power, but I will harden his heart so that he won't let the people go. Then you will say to Pharaoh, this is what Yahweh says. Israel is my firstborn son. I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go. Now I will kill your firstborn son. On the trip at an overnight campsite, it happened that the Lord confronted him and sought to put him to death. So Zipporah took a flint, cut off her son's foreskin and threw it at Moses' feet. Then she said, you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. At that time, she said, you are a bridegroom of blood, referring to the circumcision. Now the Lord had said to Aaron, go and meet Moses in the wilderness. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had sent him to say and about all the signs he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and assembled all the elders of the Israelites. Aaron repeated everything the Lord had said to Moses and performed the signs before the people. The people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had paid attention to them and that he had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. Let's just pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So we encounter actually in this passage one of the most remarkable of all the encounters that a human being has had with the Lord. It's there in the Older Testament at the burning bush. And it's there that God not only reveals some of the mystery of his name, Yahweh, but he showed that because of God's presence with his people, even though they were enslaved in Egypt, they were not consumed. Moses sees a bush in the desert burning. That in and of itself would not have been that surprising. The heat, a dry bush. What was shocking was that the bush wasn't being burned up. And then, of course, the Lord speaks to him from the bush. And so there was a, a picture there that God's presence is preventing his people from being consumed in the midst of their oppression. And Moses is now at the beginning of the book of Exodus, beginning to learn about God's calling on his life and what God requires of him. And the ultimate goal in view that emerges in our text is that God's people might be liberated, set free to honor, worship, and serve the Lord in the earth. So I want to uh, consider our text under three basic headings today. Three signs, two objections, and freedom for the people of God. Three signs, two objections, and freedom for the people of God. So let's think about these three signs first of all. Now up to this point in Moses' life, his actions have been largely self-motivated. And if you know 
the story of Moses' life, you know that he rose up at one point as a prince within Egypt who'd been adopted into the household of the daughter of Pharaoh. He sees his people, they're suffering, and one day he rises up in anger and he slays an Egyptian guard. He ends up fleeing from Pharaoh to save his own life. I mean, God didn't tell him to kill that Egyptian, uh, but he did it, and he ends up scared and running away and fleeing to save himself. And now decades later, here he is still in the wilderness. He's now married. He's married to Jethro's daughter. He's tending sheep. That's a pretty big difference from where he was. He'd been a prince of all Egypt, and now he's wandering around in the desert, herding in the wilderness, herding sheep. He's making a living for himself. No doubt the urge to help his people is still in his heart. That wouldn't have gone away. But he didn't know how that could ever happen. How could a, 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 a man hated and resented by his adoptive family, people seeking his life, now wandering around in the wilderness looking after sheep, ever be a deliverer of Israel? No solution is in sight then until this conversation at the burning bush. God has been teaching Moses during this time to wait in the wilderness, Moses' own strength, his self-will is being broken. And he's learning about reliance upon the Lord. Have you ever felt like that in your own Christian life? As though your own strength is being broken and God is teaching you to wait. There are difficult times, times of waiting. Times when we feel like God is searching us out and breaking our own sense of self-reliance. So Moses knows from what we didn't read in chapter three that he is being sent to Pharaoh, but he's no idea how God is going to work this deliverance beyond being told that God's going to perform some signs. And naturally, Moses has got all kinds of questions. He's got all kinds of doubts. He's got all kinds of fears, and who wouldn't? He's got in his mind, a lot to be afraid of, a lot to be fearful about. It's interesting, actually, and we're going to return to it in a moment, that his first objection doesn't concern the Egyptians primarily. You would think that his major objection to this would be, oh, Pharaoh's a really scary guy. Uh, there's people there who want to kill me. How can I possibly confront Pharaoh? But his first objection doesn't concern them. It concerns the cynicism of his own people. What if they won't believe me and will not obey me, but say the Lord did not appear to you? Now, it's a common feature in Scripture, isn't it? And it's a common feature of church history, actually, that frequently those who claim to be God's people are most resistant to the voice of the prophets and to the voice of God. You think about uh, Jonah going to Assyria, the heart of the Assyrian Empire, to Nineveh, and they repent. Jonah's quite upset about it. But when the prophets go to their own people, what is it the Lord Jesus says? You who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. It was true in the time of the Lord Jesus. It's true in the time of the apostles as they take the word out. God's people are often resistant 
to the message of the prophets. I think we've seen a bit of that in the last two or three years. But to prepare Moses for what lies ahead and to confirm his calling, God wants to meet these questions and concerns and doubts that are quite natural. Who wouldn't have them? He's human. Moses is just an ordinary human being. God meets them with offering three signs, two of which are performed right in front of him and which will be done before both the Israelites and then later on the Egyptians. And they are the the miracle that occurs with the staff or the rod, the leprous white hand, and then the Nile water becoming blood. Now, to actually understand the significance of these signs, we first need to just take a a moment to say something about the religious faith of Egypt. Why would God choose the signs that he did? Well, if I say to you, what's the first thing you think of when I say Egypt? It's probably a couple of things. For the older ones among you, maybe Charlton Heston uh, in the Ten Commandments. Uh, But usually it's pyramids. Pyramids. And and maybe the pharaohs are the two things that people think of when they hear the word Egypt. And the pyramids, many of them are still there. You can go and look at them. They're considered one of the wonders of the world. You see, the Egyptians, uh, the way they did their architecture, the way they thought about reality, they thought of reality as a static order, a permanent static order, and that their society represented this permanent static order, that triangular shape of the pyramid, its mathematical precision, its lasting character. It all spoke to their belief about reality that uh, really their culture aligned with the essential static structure of being. Everything was reliable. A static realm without change. One commentator has put it this way. He says, in challenging Egypt's faith, God struck at the world of nature. Suddenly, nature became to the Egyptian mind perverse and undependable. This fact struck at the foundations of Egyptian life and religion. Egypt's certainties became uncertainties. Egypt's certainties became uncertainties. So with that backdrop, you begin to understand why God did what he did in Egypt, the signs that he performed in turning their religious worldview of the dependability of nature against them. But the first uh, sign that God gives to Moses is he's instructed to throw a shepherd's staff onto the ground. And when it does so, when he throws the staff on the ground, which we're later told is God's staff, it's the Lord's staff, it becomes a serpent. And when he's instructed to pick it up again, it returns to being a wooden staff, a rod. Seems a bit bizarre. And by the way, the last thing you should do is pick a snake up by the tail. It'll turn around and bite you. But here he is, he's told to pick up, to throw his staff down, it becomes a serpent, and to take it up again. Now the rod, what's the rod a symbol of in the Bible? the rod or the staff. The rod in scripture is a symbol of power and authority. Think about Psalm 2, 
you shall break them with a rod of iron. The Lord is my shepherd. The great empires, the great rulers of the great empires of the ancient world often depicted themselves holding the shepherd's staff. They called themselves the great shepherd or the shepherds of their people. There's a reason why Jesus called himself the good, the great, the good and the great shepherd of the sheep. The shepherd's staff then is a sign ultimately of Christ's authority over the nations. We're told that both in the Psalms and in the book of Revelation. So the rod in Moses' hands is actually a type of divine power, which in the good shepherd's hand is a staff of tenderness and of care. But power and authority wielded outside the hand of God's servants, outside of God's rule, changes character. It becomes serpentine. It becomes a serpent. It's diabolic. That's why the scriptures ask in Psalm 94, can a corrupt throne be your ally, a throne that makes evil laws? The staff in the hand of God's servant, God's staff, righteousness, justice, outside of God's hand, power and authority wielded outside of God's authority becomes serpentine. The snake actually had an important role in Egyptian mythology. You may be able to see on the slide I've got up there that on the front of Pharaoh's crown was a serpent and it depicted his power to kill. That was the idea of it. The snake in this form was a symbol of the goddess Wadjet in ancient Egypt. And like a serpent, Pharaoh was biting and killing God's people. But he's going to soon be turned into a dry stick. But the major lesson here is that the godless state becomes a leviathan. It becomes a serpent opposed to God. But when the staff is back in the hand of Moses, God's servant, it becomes a shepherd's staff again. It powerfully reminds us of Psalm 2. I'd encourage you to read Psalm 2 today. The true shepherd king who has alone power and authority to rule over the nations. Now in our own time, the state is increasingly like a serpent, exercising its power and authority in opposition to God. Only when fulfilling its role as God's servant is it not uh, demonic in this way. So that was the first sign. The second sign was this rather sort of Tolkien slash Harry Potter kind of a scary leprous white hand sort of a thing. I mean, imagine that. You put your hand inside your cloak, you pull it out, it's diseased and leprous, you put it back in again. I often wonder whether Moses was kind of going... But when he when he puts it, it, uh, it when he puts it uh, it back and he removes it again, it's made whole. So it goes in, it comes out, it's diseased. He puts it in, it brings it out. What an incredible sign! I mean, if you ever wanted a, a miracle done right in front of your face, there it is. In Scripture, leprosy, this sort of disease, symbolizes sin and defilement. It meant you were cut off from the people; you couldn't come near. The lepros had to wear bells on them so that people would know when they were around they were unclean it separated people from society while diseased and unclean was how pharaoh was soon to be seen by his own people 
It's only by the grace of God that we are cleansed and made a new creation. And of course, in the ministry of the Lord Jesus, you see the cleansing of lepers. It's very significant. Those who are outside, ostracized, pushed away, are brought near because they are cleansed. And even hard-hearted Israel now is going to be made to hear the voice of God, cleansed and given a new heart. And then there's the third sign, the Nile water becoming blood. Now this sign is not performed right in front of Moses, but it was later by uh, Aaron before the people in, um, we see that in verse 30. And then finally on a grand scale before Pharaoh. Now this sign actually has clear reference to the Hebrew infants who were thrown into the Nile in Exodus 1.22. So Egypt, Pharaoh was committing infanticide against God's people. He had instructed the Hebrew midwives to, to, to take the children that are born to the Hebrews and toss them in the Nile. Some of them we know, of course, disobeyed. But the God of the Nile, and the Nile was by the Egyptians was considered a God, was going to become putrid and loathsome, being turned into blood. Because God had not forgotten all of the infants drowned in Egypt, that infanticide ordered by Pharaoh. Let me suggest to you this morning that God hasn't forgotten all the murderous abortions performed in the last 70 years in Canada or in the West. And his judgment doesn't fail. You know, if you want to understand or think through why we're experiencing all the difficulties we are today, all the challenges we are culturally, all, of the, all the decline we're facing, financial, economic, diseases, all these sorts of things, don't have to look much further than our apostasy against God, our murder of the unborn, People's professed unbelief in divine judgment in history is irrelevant to God's vengeance. People may not think God is watching or cares, but he does. And so these are the signs and symbols Moses is given to assure him of his calling that God is with him and that he is being given the power to accomplish this work. Moses is not made a magician here. He's allowed, God says in this passage, to accomplish these particular signs. God gives him the ability to do these signs. But Moses has some objections. Despite the miracles, he's got some objections. He's got all the empirical evidence anybody could ever ask for to obey. God's almighty power has been made manifest in front of him. He's there at the burning bush and God is speaking to him. Remember, God is not bound by his laws for creation. Those laws simply express his will. What we call natural laws are simply God's normal way of working, God's will for creation. But it's actually Christ's powerful word that holds all things together. So miracles in the Bible are often called signs. Why are they signs? Well, because they're different from God's ordinary way of working. Otherwise, they wouldn't be signs, would they? And the purpose of a sign is not that you stay at the sign and go, oh, what a beautiful sign, what an amazing sign, let's stay here. If you're going on vacation to Muskoka, 
You don't stop at the signs to Muskoka, do you? You're trying to get somewhere else. So the point is not to stop at God's um, uh, uh, signs that are different from his ordinary way of working aren't parlor tricks to impress people. They're pointing us to something. Sometimes we have a view of reality, of the world, of the, of the cosmos, of the universe, that it's kind of like a great clock, mechanical clock. God wound it up at the beginning, and then he just let it go to run in terms of its own power and laws. And very occasionally, he comes along with a sort of divine screwdriver. He puts it in the cogs of the clock, does something a bit different, takes the screwdriver out, off it goes again. That's not the biblical picture of the world. The biblical picture of the world is at all times, in every, in every aspect of created reality, everything is dependent in every moment on the powerful word of God. In him, all things hold together, all things consist. That's why there will never be a theory of everything. Because it is Christ Jesus, the transcendent God, who holds all things together. You cannot find the origin and meaning of all things within the creation itself. God does things differently sometimes, doesn't he? Lepers aren't usually cleansed instantly. The blind don't spontaneously see in the day-to-day. Water isn't ordinarily transformed into wine in the twinkling of an eye. Dead men don't usually walk out of their graves. That's the power of the word of God, the word who made all things. And so Moses' issue now is not intellectual. Doesn't our culture, the Western world has tended to say, well, if only God would do this, be a bit more obvious, do this sign, do that sign. That's never been true that these sorts of miracles or signs convince people. Jesus healed 10 lepers. Was it one came back to acknowledge and say thank you? He's got no ground to question God's power, but Moses makes excuses despite all the signs he's been given. The issue is not evidence, it's faith. That's why evidentialism is actually a failure. It's not that there aren't lots of evidences for the truth of the Christian faith. It's just that the notion that you can convince people by saying, well, look at this evidence from archaeology or this or that or the other is going to somehow bring people in, in and of itself is a misunderstanding. Paul says in Romans 1 that the challenge for the unbeliever is not a lack of evidence of God's divine power, it's that they hold down, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We make excuses. Paul says we are without excuse, but we make excuses. The unbeliever makes excuses. Moses made excuses. What's his first objection? What if they won't believe me? Well, from the time that he'd risen up to kill the Egyptians, we see that Moses' self-confidence is being shattered. And you can see here, he's still struggling with that. He's got no confidence. But broken people whose hearts are transformed by the Spirit of God, who are ready to walk in his grace and power, are the ones God is always looking to use for his victorious purposes. So you may think, well, I'm a broken vessel, I, I, I'm lacking confidence, etc., etc. Well, you know, actually, when we submit ourselves to God, those are the people God is looking to use. Not people full of their self-reliance and their own self-confidence, but people who have been broken, they're, they're meek before the Lord. God had given Moses these signs, of course, because his first objection had been, what if they won't believe me and will not obey me? 
And this is a real reminder of Moses' humanity. It makes us think of our own humanity, I'm sure, because for a person to believe they have something valuable or important to say to a rebellious culture and generation takes courage and faith. To believe you've got something worthwhile or valuable to say takes courage and faith. It doesn't come naturally to anybody. You might think, oh, well, you know, it comes more naturally to Pastor Rock because he's that kind of personality. Nope. Courage and faith don't come naturally to any human being. The first thing we ask ourselves when God calls us to speak or to act for him is that why would anybody pay any attention to us? Why would anybody listen to me or my isolated voice? The prophet Isaiah said himself, who has believed our report? Speaking to people even in the life of the church who seem determined to ignore God's law word or to tolerate evil and injustice or to submit when the music plays to the image that is set up can feel hopeless, it can feel depressing. And Moses was frequently depressed in his leadership of Israel. At one point he said, Lord, just kill me now. He was so tired of the people. But God graciously gives Moses these signs so that he can go in boldness. And God has given us, us, every sign in Christ, in the witness of scripture, in the testimony of the Holy Spirit, in the fellowship of his church, to speak his truth with boldness and to obey our calling. We don't have any excuse. He's given us every sign. Moses was not on our side of the resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus or on our side of the giving of the Holy Spirit. You say to yourself, well, yeah, but if the Lord sort of did that hand trick with me, I'd be totally on. No, you wouldn't. The second objection, he says, is, well, I'm not eloquent. How can I speak? My, I'm, I'm not very quick-witted. I'm, 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 I'm slow to speak. I'm not a good public speaker, Lord. He doubts his own suitability, his own equipping to be God's instrument. In this case, speaking. Someone else would serve God better, Lord. Now, how often... Is that our answer when God is calling us to do something? Laying down a co the course for our lives. Well, Lord, I'm not really suitable. You know, somebody else, they, they do this better. Maybe call him or her. And the answer God gives shatters every feeble excuse. Who placed a mouth on humans? Who makes a person mute or deaf, seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go. I will help you speak, and I will teach you what to say. In other words, what God commissions us to do, he will empower us to fulfill. What God commissions us to do, he will empower us to fulfill. Are you inadequate? Am I inadequate? Yes. That's it. There's no debate about that. Yes. But God will be, he said to Moses, I will be with your mouth. Literally in the Hebrew is what he says that. I will be with your mouth. There's an interesting parallel actually to this in the words of Jesus to the disciples. 
Oh, I missed a couple of slides for you there. Sorry about that. Look, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as serpents and as harmless as doves. Because people will hand you over to Sanhedrins and flog you in their synagogues, beware of them. You'll even be brought before governors and kings because of me to bear witness to them and to the nations. But when they hand you over, don't worry about how or what you should speak, for you will be given what to say in that hour, because you are not speaking, but the spirit of your father is speaking through you. So it's the same for us as it was for Moses. Jesus is clear that to challenge the rebellion, oppression, wickedness of our time and culture is difficult. And at times it's a dangerous task. To be a Christian, Jesus is saying, it's dangerous. Just consider the last few years, even in Canada. Who would have thought it? Jesus warns us, beware of men, even those who do not know Christ, who dare to speak up and resist injustice. There's been plenty of examples of those, actually, over the last two or three years. People even today speaking out against, say, the trans lobby in the university. They're losing their jobs. They're not even Christians. They're being thrown out of their positions. Former chief Lord justices in England, like Lord Sumption, spoke out against lockdowns and illegal mandates, attacked mercilessly. A former chief justice, just for speaking common sense. Well, if that happens to those who just speak common sense, who don't profess Christ, how much more those who claim to be the Lord's people and who proclaim and defend God's law and gospel and call people to repentance, who call kings and premiers to account in terms of the word of God, I expect a few years ago, none of us would have predicted evangelical pastors being fined and imprisoned for faithfulness in our own country. Humanly speaking, against the torrent of evil and injustice today that we see all around us, we are helpless. We're not adequate to the task, but not when we are called and sent in the power of the Holy Spirit. There's been a few times in my own ministry that I've had to face my own doubts and sense of intimidation or inability. And I remember one particular occasion I'll just share with you. I sat on a platform at a Canadian university. It was in Ottawa at the time a few years ago. And it was a, it was a, a debate. I was doing these series of debates on the existence of God. And they'd hired in a humanist professor from America to come and debate me and flown him up to Ottawa. And I remember sitting on a stage uh, not dissimilar to this, and there were, there were two tables, one this side, one that side. I was over here. And um, these kind of debates aren't so popular anymore. People, you know, they get triggered by a debate, so nobody, nobody actually wants to have one. But uh, the, back 10 years or so ago, they were still popular, drew large, large crowds of people, and there were hundreds of people, mainly students, in this auditorium. And as I sat there, and I hadn't been doing debates for that long, I looked out at the audience as we were waiting to start and saw them looking at me, much like you are now, only a lot less friendly. <laughs> and honestly, the look on some of these people's faces, they looked like they wanted to tear my head off, and I hadn't even said anything yet. 
They were there to cheerlead for their side. And as I looked out and I saw their faces and I saw the hostility in their faces, I was pretty scared. You, gotta, you have to then stand up. It's going to be cross-examination. There's several hours of and then you're taking Q&A from the audience. And as I sat there, I'll never forget how the Lord spoke to me. I don't recommend this as your discipline for personal devotions, but I just picked up my Bible, which was there in front of me, and I flipped open. I let it fall open on randomly. I said, Lord, just speak to me now. And as I looked down at the page, this is what I read. Do not be afraid of their faces, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. It was a great evening. See, the focus in both Exodus and Matthew is on being ready and willing to speak, to act, dependent on the Lord, whatever your station, whatever your situation, and God accepts no excuses. But Moses is still in doubt, and he says, Please, Lord, send somebody else. It's quite remarkable the way the text is so crystal clear about Moses' excuses. Do you feel that way in your heart sometimes? You know, Moses actually angered God at this point. Lord, send somebody else. And yet God still accommodates to Moses' weakness and he meets him halfway and he gives him Aaron, his brother, as his spokesman because Aaron was a good speaker. He was kind of like a presidential press secretary for Moses. They could use one of those down south, couldn't they? To be with his mouth, right? The content, the authority was coming from Moses. Aaron was the speaker. And so we might have different roles in the life of God's people today in terms of our kingdom mission. We've got different roles, different callings, but faithfulness to God's calling is the key requirement. So Moses is ordered to take the staff as he represents God as the shepherd of Israel in verse 17. Pick up the staff, Moses. And God uses this arrangement between Moses and Aaron in God's providence to have a deep impact upon Pharaoh. One commentator put it this way. Pharaoh was to the Egyptians the great God, and as such he spoke to the people through various officials who were his mouth. The Lord uses Moses' reluctance to establish an ironic parallel, one which both mocks and challenges Pharaoh. Moses appears before Pharaoh as God's prophet and also instead of God. Like Pharaoh, he has a mouth, Aaron, to speak for him. This was so bold a challenge and one accompanied with supernatural judgments that it restrained Pharaoh's vengeance against Moses and Aaron. See, what he's saying is Pharaoh considered himself a god, so he didn't speak directly to anybody, he used a mouthpiece. A person. So God establishes this ironic parallel. Here's Moses representing the living God, and he has a mouthpiece. Have you ever wondered why, when Moses and Aaron went before Pharaoh, Pharaoh just didn't say, take these two uh, shepherd boys out of here and execute them? That never happened. Pharaoh was intimidated by the parallel that he saw combined with those signs. He was afraid to lay a hand on Moses. And you know, if you speak up, and you act on behalf of the Lord, you will be asked to speak and act on behalf of others. That's what was happening 
for Moses and Aaron. We're required by God to speak faithfully to our generation, whatever the cost. Jesus said this, Therefore, make up your minds not to prepare your defense ahead of time, for I will give you such words and a wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You might not win the case, but they won't be able to resist it. When Moses later met Aaron in the wilderness, the brothers were ready to speak truth to power. They greeted one another at the mountain of God, a wooden staff in their hand, the word of God in their hearts. That's it. No army, a staff, and God's word. Finally, don't get too excited. It might take me a few minutes. Freedom for the people of God. That's how God sets the stage. But the goal, the focus of Moses' calling and preparation was the progress of the kingdom of God. So he goes respectfully to his father-in-law Jethro, who says, go in peace, go back to Egypt. God tells Moses that those who sought his life are now dead. And at this point, God's remind, God reminds him of the message he is to give to Pharaoh. The signs, you don't stay at the signs, the signs are to accomplish this end. What does God say? Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go that he may Worship, or better, serve me. Let my son go that he may serve me. And since the pharaohs considered themselves sons of God, this was a direct challenge to their status, and it comes with a warning on the sons of Egypt if Pharaoh refuses. Now, the thing I want you to notice here in in, in tying this up is that the kingdom of God entails freedom for the sons of God. The kingdom of God entails freedom for the sons of God. The story, you see, of the Exodus is one of slavery to freedom. And that's the entire story of the gospel. Jesus goes through the waters of the Jordan. He goes out into the wilderness for 40 days, not 40 years, like Israel. There he defeats the temptation of Satan with the word of God. He comes in out of the wilderness. He goes up onto the mountain as the greater Moses, and there he expounds the law. He recapitulates the life of Israel. And at the end, before the cross, he's on the mountain of transfiguration and they discuss Moses and Elijah and the Lord, the exodus he is about to accomplish. That's the whole story of the gospel, of our salvation. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Live as people who are free, says Peter. Because if the people of God are to truly worship and serve God, they need to be liberated to do so. They need to be free to receive and obey God's covenant law to be a light to the nations concerning God's rule and reign. In other words, the gospel of the kingdom needed a home from where to spread. Moses is being sent to liberate God's people so that there is both a people and a place for the law and the promises to be believed and applied. And this is why the gospel, wherever it's gone, has brought liberty and freedom. And as the gospel and the faith declines, oppression and tyranny and injustice reemerge. And it's been actually the story of our own nations, of Great Britain, of Canada, of the United States. You know, when I was preparing this message back in there in November, November the 5th, I know we don't celebrate it in Canada, it's Guy Fawkes Night, Bonfire Night. Has anybody heard of that? Bonfire Night, yep. 
November the Fifth, they call Firework Night, is actually a commemoration of a mighty, two mighty deliverances in the history of England. One, there was a plot to destroy the Houses of Parliament in 1605 that was foiled. It was the citadel of the Reformed faith at that time. And then also, November 5th, was the landing of King William III in 1688, the glorious revolution central to the establishment of religious liberty. Charles Spurgeon said this, about November 5th, he said, our convictions and our love of liberty should make us regard its anniversary with holy gratitude. Let our hearts and lips exclaim, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days in days of old. You have made this nation the home of the gospel. And when the enemy has risen against her, you have shielded her. And that grace of God in Canada and the United States were equally made homes for the gospel so that we spread the gospel throughout all the world. A home for the gospel right here. And that privilege is one we are squandering. If the sons of God, the brothers of Christ, the firstborn son are bound up by the state, freedom is destroyed steadily for the gospel. The great John Knox understood this. He recognized that the common people had the right and duty to disobedience if state officials ruled contrary to the Bible and to do otherwise would be rebellion against God. And he inspired that movement called the Puritans. Great books like Lex Rex or The Law and the Prince, which argued that law is king and all law must be grounded in the law of God. And so Francis Schaeffer in the, in the last century said, in almost every place where the Reformation flourished, there was not only religious non-compliance, there was civil disobedience as well. Because wherever the gospel goes, freedom goes with it. And this is why actually, and I was kind of pleased Aaron mentioned it, that he and I uh, penned that first letter, the Ontario Church's letter, and then the, what followed it was the Niagara Declaration, which we worked on together. And then there was also an open letter that made it to the front page of Fox News in the United States, an open, uh, an open letter to the Prime Minister. The reason we did that wasn't because we wanted to take all of that heat or put under threat our own organizations or churches. It's because God requires it of us. We must be released to worship and serve the Lord. The gospel involves a people, yes, but also a place, a place like this, where we carry the message, and it goes out from us, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the nations of the world. And so to obey God fully and serve his kingdom requires freedom to do so. You look at the church in China, despite growth there, we call the underground church, they're not free. It can't be a true home for the gospel when you can't openly serve and obey the Lord. And if we fail to recognize the importance of that, we fail to see the full meaning of the Exodus and of the gospel, which is this. Let my son go so that he may serve me. God honors and blesses nations that give free reign to the law and gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're given this assurance by the prophet Isaiah. No weapon formed against you will succeed. You will refute any accusation raised you against, against you in court. This is the heritage of the Lord's servants and their righteousness is from me. This is the Lord's declaration. 
I'm basically done, but you might say to yourself, how has Joe expertly avoided dealing with the bloody circumcision? <laughs> and got through the, without saying anything about it. Well, let me just say this. Moses is reminded then on his way that judgment begins at the house of God. That's what he's reminded of. One of his sons was not circumcised. He had, did not have the sign of the covenant. We cannot go and proclaim the gospel of the kingdom and the righteous law of God and expect God's blessing and success if we ourselves are not committed to obedience to his word even in our own families. God is no buttercup. He reserves the right to judge anyone who does not respect his covenant word. Paul reminds us of that, about the, the church in Corinth, when he says their abuse of the covenant meal. He said, some of you are sick and some of you have died because you have abused the covenant, the sign of the covenant. The sign of the covenant needed to be upon Moses' family. He needed to walk in obedience and faith to be effective, and so must we. And thank God for even strong wives who will come and say to their husbands, you're a husband of blood, get my son circumcised. She threw it down in front of him. So let's challenge one another to faith and obedience as we say to our culture, let my son go, that we may worship and serve him. Thank you.